Greetings and welcome to the Mind Matters News Podcast. I'm your buoyant host, Robert J. Marks. Buoyant because uh, all of these conversations where I learn stuff makes me feel good. We've been talking about fine-tuning in the universe that allows life. There is no doubt the universe is fine-tuned to allow life, to allow you and me to exist. Everybody agrees, the scientists, the biologists, uh, and the chemists. Today, we talk about the cause of fine-tuning. Again, there's no controversy. But why is the universe finely tuned? We have two guests with expertise in fine-tuning to talk with us today. Dr. Ola Herscher is a professor of mathematical statistics at Stockholm University in Sweden. Ola, welcome. Oh, thanks a lot, Bob, for being part of this and, and for inviting me. Okay, it's 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 a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying our chat and I'm learning a lot. Uh, our second guest is Dr. Daniel Diaz. He's a research assistant professor of biostatistics at the University of Miami. Daniel, welcome to you too. Thank you, Bob. You know, there are various theories of the cause of fine-tuning of the universe. Many are prompted by one's ideology. So let's go down the list of the ones that I have, and I think I've, I've done a good exhaustive search of the theories for fine-tuning. And the first one, Daniel, I'd like you to talk about is panspermia. We're fine-tuned because of panspermia. Okay, so uh, panspermia is the idea that life was seeded on Earth from the outer space. That's basically the idea. And then there is a particular uh, particularization of that idea that is called directed panspermia. It was, if I'm not mistaken, proposed by uh, Crick. Yes, Francis Crick. Francis yes. Crick, yeah, the co-discoverer of the structure of the DNA molecule. And a winner of a Nobel Prize, so he was, a, he was no dummy. Yeah, exactly. So he proposed this idea of directed panspermia in order to explain how life started here on Earth. That is basically the idea. Panspermia is just the idea that life was seeded on Earth from the outer space, and then directed panspermia, as Francis Crick proposed it, it was the idea that it was seeded on Earth by an extraterrestrial civilization. That's really that's really strange. Uh, what's the difference between directed and regular panspermia? I think one was done on purpose, the other was accidental. Is that right? Yeah, so basically there was an extraterrestrial agent indirected panspermia seeding life here on Earth. And on the other side, it could be simply accidental that uh, life was seeded on Earth because it was coming from instant from an asteroid and the little uh, unicellular form of life started to develop until we uh, come to this point. You know, another person that was into and believed about panspermia was Fred Hoyle who we've quoted, and Fred Hoyle definitely believed in a fine-tuned universe. I think that there's very little controversy that the universe is fine-tuned. There's always controversy, but I think that the uh, consensus is that the university was was fine-tuned. Isn't the idea of panspermia just kicking the can down the road? Are you familiar with that colloquialism? It's just, it's just um, kind of displacing the problem of where we came from to where did this incredible civilization come from that planted life here on earth yeah so let me just uh recently there was a debate a conversation between sabine host uh, hosted founder i think is the way to pronounce her last name he, she's a very famous physicist with a, a well-known channel on youtube and uh luke barnes 
who has done extensive research on fine tuning. And they were having this debate. And it is very interesting that they coincide that uh, explaining why there is fine tuning is actually not a scientific question. So Luke Barnes said that basically science ends saying that there is fine tuning. On explaining why there is fine tuning, there might be different approaches. And of course, then uh, different worldviews are going to produce different explanations for that fine-tuning that we're observing in nature. Interesting. Okay. So panspermia, I don't know. I think it just, it just again, kicks the can down the road. It leads the question as to the origin of this master race or master, the master people that came here and planted life on earth. It's, it's just strange. One of the other theories of the origin of life on earth is something I only heard recently, maybe about five or six years ago, and it's called the Sims theory of fine tuning. Daniel, could you talk about the Sims theory of fine-tuning? Yeah, we, we talked about it also before in one of the previous podcasts. I don't remember at this point which one. But uh, the idea of the simulation theory is that we are all part of a simulation. So the way to think about it is that, uh, well, the guy who developed this theory is uh, Nick Bostrom. He's a philosopher at Oxford University in England. And uh, when he came with this theory, he proposed that it is possible that we are living in a simulation. So this has to be thought just as in any computer problem, then uh, there is an algorithm and there was a super advanced civilization in the future that finally uh, made a computer simulation and we are all part of that simulation. Uh, I'm not saying that I agree with that position, but it is there and it has generated a lot of controversy. I know that, for instance, Elon Musk is convinced of that theory and he says that we all live in a simulation, but it also has received a lot of pushback for many well-known uh, physicists. And so it's a very interesting development. Anyhow, the point with that simulation, if it is an algorithm whose outcome is that we are here, then again, it could be looked as fine-tuning, in which there is this algorithm whose target is the civilization as we know it inside the simulation. And in that sense, then that target needs to be uh, finely tuned. So fine-tuning has been studied in that sense in the in the simulation hypothesis, more looked at from the perspective of the anthropic principle. You know, this also kind of kicks the can down the road, in my opinion. Um, we have to ask ourselves, again, where did the super race come from? And certainly their ability to write simulations about us uh, must come from some sort of fine-tuning. The other, the other objection I have is there's many things that people do that are non-algorithmic. In fact, this is one of the fundamental uh, postures of the Bradley Center, that we are not algorithmic, that we have we have things which we do that you can't write a computer program to simulate. These include things like qualia, understanding, consciousness, creativity. And if we are indeed simulations, then whoever did this programming must know how to program 
non-algorithmic things into our being. And I just, man, I don't see how that can happen, at least from what I know, because all computers are limited and all simulations are limited to the algorithmic. If you heard Elon Musk has has hired uh, some people to go around and look for some flaws in our simulation? Yeah, some people have looked at those things. But uh, let me just mention that I also do agree with your with your comments, what you're saying right now. But uh, in just playing as the various advocate here in terms of the simulation uh, hypothesis, well, the, the, the argument as it goes is that a post-human civilization is so technologically advanced that it is capable of simulating all that we are doing, even if it, uh, it doesn't look uh, algorithmic in, in some sense. So that's the hypothesis. So, uh, I mean, it has many, many, as I said, people who are uh, detractors and many people who do not agree with the position that, well, that's how the argument goes anyhow. It it seems kind of silly to me if we talk about the Sims from uh, an advanced simulation that does, does simulations of us. There's a couple of movies that I'm reminded of with the Sims theory. One, of course, is The Matrix. Yeah, <laughs> that's the default. <laughs> yeah, that's the default. That's where everybody goes to where, um, gosh, Keanu Reeves. Yeah, Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Anyway, he work, he, he wakes up in a, in a big vat of primordial soup in which he has been basking, and his entire life has been simulated. So... That's one example of the Sims, I guess. Yeah. And Elon Musk looking around for little flaws in Sims really is strange. It reminds me of of another movie called The Truman Show. Oh, yeah. Starring Jim Carrey, (laughs) where he came out one time and all of his life, all of his existence was programmed in order to make it seem like he was... uh, he was living in a real world. And then all of a sudden, this big lighting unit goes right in front of his house. And, you know, it came from the top where, where there was a simulation of a sky. And all of a sudden, Jim Carrey had this idea that, you know, maybe the reality that he perceived wasn't true. This reminds me of Elon Musk's uh, hiring of these people to go out and look for flaws in the Sims theory and see if see if he can find any evidence for it. So anyway, it's um, it's an interesting theory, I suppose. Well, let's move on to another theory. We've, we've covered panspermia, the Sims theory. Another theory of the reason that we are here is the anthropic principle. Ola, could you educate us about the anthropic principle? Yeah, uh, um, the word anthropic, that has to do with humans, the meaning of the word. And, and, and there are, it comes in two versions, the weak and strong anthropic principle. And uh, the strong anthropic principle was proposed by John Barrow and Frank Tipler in the late 80s. And it holds that the universe is constructed for life to exist and for humans to live and thrive within the universe. So, so in that sense, the strong anthropic principle is closely re- related to uh, that our universe is fine-tuned for life to exist and for u- humans to live with it, but it sort of also adds an interpretation of it. It was so, uh, sort of a, almost like a purpose. But, it, but the other version, the weak anthropic principle, it also deals, deals with the fact that uh, the universe is fine-tuned for life to exist, but it says that as humans, 
we are sort of biased because we live in this we live in a universe that harbors life and for this reason we are biased so and it's also called selection bias so it's a sort of a criticism of the strong anthropic principle saying that yes if there was another universe without life we would not be able to live in that universe and 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 tell that it existed so so uh, according to the to the weak anthropic principle uh, we should not be surprised to live in a in a universe that harbors life so 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 they sort of these are sort of two different kinds of interpretation of fine tuning of uh, the universe uh, or fine tuning of the universe for life to exist but i should add that in our paper that we published recently and which we talked about during episodes one, two, and three, the paper is Cosmological Tuning Final Course that was published in the Journal of Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics. There we compute or give an upper bound for the probability of a randomly generated universe to have a certain constant of nature ending up within its life-permitting interval. And then we actually take the weak entropic principle into account and still we come up with small probabilities for certain constants of nature or certain ratios of constants of nature. So, so, so I think that is interesting. So, so even though this weak entropic principle in a sense is, is criticizes a strong entropic principle, we are, we are able to come up with a small probability of ending up within the life-permitting interval and still not violating the weak entropic principle. Okay. You know, the, 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 one of the best counterexamples of the anthropic principle I heard from William Lane Craig. I don't think he was a, uh, the originator of the idea, but it's very clear from the work that we've been talking about that the probability of our universe permitting life is very, very small. Craig gives the example of a man dressed and ready for a firing squad. He goes out, his hands are bound, his eyes are covered, so he doesn't have to look at the firing squad. But in the firing squad, there are people which hate him. There are marksmen. There is one guy with a bazooka, and uh, they're all ready to take him out in this firing squad. So a big explosion happens, and there is a lot of smoke But when the smoke clears, the guy was still standing there. His blindfold was gone. His hands weren't tied behind his back. And, uh, you know, everything was okay. He he didn't have a scratch on him. So the anthropic principle would correspond to the guy that was in front of the firing squad, shrugging his shoulders and saying, you know what? It happened. Uh, I don't know why it happened, but it, it did happen. I don't have to worry about that because I'm here. And that's proof that it happened. Whereas I think in reality, if we had a small probability event like this, we would. Pro- if I was a guy in the front in front of the firing squad, I might dedicate maybe a portion of my life to finding out why the heck I wasn't shot. Why did mm. this low probability event happen? Mm. So I think it's intellectually bankrupt. The anthropic principle is intellectually bankrupt, and I see that this is shared by a number of physicists that yes. they see this as an explanation that fits their ideology, but they're really not wild about the anthropic principle at all. Yeah, yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. So if we apply, I think that example with the firing squad is, is a very nice one. I think if we apply the weak anthropic principle to everyday life, we should not be surprised by anything 
because we simply say, well, given that it's happened, it, it, it sort of happened, and and uh, I, I, I I cannot sort of say anything about the probability for it to, ha- to happen or anything, and and I think that's sort of a philosophy of life that is difficult to adhere to for anyone. Yeah, could we could we talk about the difference between the weak and strong anthropic principles? We were talking about movies. There's one of the first X-Men movies where Dr. Xavier, who heads the school for special mutants, gives a homework assignment. He says, your homework assignment is to go home and write an essay about the weak and strong anthropic principle. So the weak and strong anthropic principle has made it into the movies. What's the differentiation between the two? What makes the anthropic principle weak? What makes it strong? Yeah, I I, I think that... if, you, if we start with a strong anthropic principle, then it's really saying that it's almost like the, the universe was constructed for a purpose uh, for humans to exist and thrive within it because the probability for it happening by chance is so small. And, and, and then the weak anthropic principle tries to weaken or explain away that first uh, explanation by saying, yes, but given that we exist here, we cannot say anything about other, and, any other possibilities. So, so we are bound to simply uh, accept that we live here. And, and it's like we are not going to think about uh, the reason for this happening at all. Let me, let me add one thing uh, about it. Uh, and it is related also to your previous, your previous questions about how did we measure the probability in our, in our paper. And uh, basically, uh, the idea was, that was the idea behind taking the maximum of the probabilities over all the over the restrictions we are we're considering. So we are not considering only our universe, but we are considering all the possible universe that could have existed under the restrictions that were assumed. And then once we're doing that, we remove the possibility of the weak anthropic principle to appear in our measurement because we are not just looking at our universe again. We are looking over we are taking like a, a general overlook over all of the possibilities. And then once we're doing that, we select the maximum. That's why uh, I mentioned before that we were going conservative in our, in, in, our, in our approach. And then in that way, we avoid the weak anthropic principle. And it has some strength in terms of the measurements because we don't want to uh, fall in the category of the selection bias measurement again. That is pretty common in, in scientific developments. And the way to avoid it then was just to consider all the possibilities and then taking the maximum probability. So that's how we approach it in our paper. Okay, okay. Well, Daniel, continue about uh, another theory of why there is fine-tuning. We've talked about panspermia, the Sims theory, the weak and strong anthropic principle. And the one I'm hoping you will comment on, Daniel, is the multiverse. That's that's another explanation for why we are experiencing fine-tuning. Okay, uh, so yeah, the multiverse is this idea that there is not only one single universe, but that there are multiple uh, universes. And the theory, again, is uh, highly controversial because nobody can measure uh, what is happening outside our universe. Yeah, is there? That's a good question. I, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's any evidence at all for the existence of a multiverse. No, it is only uh, some theoretical developments that are based on the assumption 
<laughs> I mean, it's basically assuming that there has to be other universes. So we have the multiverse uh, that produces that outcome. And uh, it's, it is an assumption. So what I mean in the end is that it is an assumption that is done and it is not a conclusion of science. It is not a conclusion of physics. And it is very interesting because most of the talk about multiverses started to appear once it was realized that there was fine-tuning in nature. So, of course, as a metaphysical possibility, well, it's, yeah, it is a possibility, but it is highly biased by the uh, assumptions that people are making with respect to what is the cause of the fine-tuning that we are observing. The problem, if you think about it, as I was saying before, is that we cannot know that there are external universes beyond ours. I mean, we, we cannot even look at our whole universe, you know? We can only see our universe to the point where light has traveled yet. And in our universe, that is what is called in physics the observable universe. So there is uh, theoretically a portion of our universe that we cannot observe. So my point is that even we cannot even look at our whole universe, let alone looking outside the universe. There's no way to do that. We cannot even know how to measure that thing. Excellent. You know, I, I, I have to I have to brag about one of my publications or one of my pieces of analysis about the universe. A lot of people say, uh, concerning the multiverse, I'm sorry, I said universe. Some people say regarding the multiverse that, you know, in, in some parallel universe, that this podcast would end right now. And in another universe, it would say that Daniel was in Miami as opposed to Columbia. Um, and they use the multiverse to say that anything can happen. Now, there's different there's different versions of the multiverse. One is from quantum theory, which says every time there's a quantum collapse that the universe is split. That's that's a weird interpretation. I'm kind of a Copenhagen man myself. But there's also the ones that where there are so the theories where these multiverses literally exist and um and i visualize them as being side by side okay and the the theories for multiverses are many but one of the most common one has about 10 to the thousandth universes in the multiverse and that sounds like a lot it does sound like there might be some place that um that that this podcast ends right now and there might be one where it doesn't end right now but if you look at the simple math behind it, it can't happen. Following on that, there's a universe where I am bald. I still am not totally bald. It's it's getting thin up there, but I'm not totally bald. So <laughs> how many universes would it be require for me to be bald in one and not bald in the other? It would take two universes, right? Now we uh, talk about Ola. No offense, Ola, but in some universe, you might be bald too. Right. Yes, yes, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> and so what happens and how many universes do we need for that? We need four, right? Yes. We need uh bald bald, bald not bald, not bald bald, and uh and, and then the fourth one. So we we have four. Now let's put Daniel, who has a rich crop of beautiful hair. Uh, but in some universe, Daniel, you're bald. Yeah. How many universes would we need then? Eight. Yeah, we would need eight, right? So every time that we add a different contingency, we double the number of universes that are required. At least. Yeah, at least, yes. And we're only using binary counter-distinctions here also. We could have one where you're bald, not bald, and then maybe um, 
you know, partially bald. We, we could, we could do three or four or five and we would multiply it instead of by two, we would multiply it by five, but let's just stick with two. So you take, um, each added counter distinction and it doubles the number of universes. So you can work backwards by taking, if you're a nerd, you know, you take the log base two of the number of universes to get the number of counter distinctions. And anyway, if you go up to 10 to the thousandth, which is a common model, uh, one of the one of the models for the uh, existence of the multiverse is that we have 10 to the hundredth, 10 to the 500th, 10 to the thousandth. So I'm taking the worst case conditions. How many counter distinctions can you have? Well, if you take the log base two of that, you find out less than 4,000. There can only be 4,000 different things in these universes. So even though 10 to the thousandth sounds like a heck of a lot, there's not a lot of things you can do with only 10 to the thousandth parallel universes. Yeah. And then, then there's people that um, say, um, well, maybe we have an infinite number of universes. That is, that is pure speculative metaphysics. There's nothing in our universe that is infinite. Everything is finite. Everything. So your point is that as we're adding contingencies, the number of multiverses is exponentially uh, increasing. Exactly. It, mm -hmm. it increases exponentially. And uh, 10 to the thousandth isn't enough to do anything. So we've been covering different uh, theories of the multiverse. And I think the multiverse, in terms of probability, has been added for those that don't want to look to a creator as saying, well, you know, if we have a multiverse, then anything could happen. And I, I, I think that just careful analysis says that that isn't true. And also the fact that there is no evidence that there exists parallel universes, absolutely zero. So let's continue. We've been talking about the reasons for fine-tuning, panspermia, the Sims theory, the anthropic principle. We've just covered the multiverse. And so let's now go to the deist creator interpretation, which I would say that is embraced by Christianity, Judaism, Muslim, and many other religions. What is the deist creator interpretation of the fine-tuning of the universe? Um, I think uh, uh, previously we have defined uh, that uh, something is fine-tuned if it's unlikely to occur by chance and if it has a sort of an independent characterization and in, in terms of the universe, that is, that the universe harbors life. If now, it's very unlikely that, for instance, such a universe came to existence by chance, then it's sort of very natural to think about other causes of the universe. And since we also have now, for something to be fine-tuned, it has to have an independent specification or characterization. Often it's a case that this characterization brings us or comes us to think about a creative mind. Uh, because in, in terms of the universe, it's that this universe should harbor life. When we talked about biology, it's, a, it's that a, a protein should function, or when we talked about uh, molecular machines, it was the same thing, it should function. Or, uh, and and uh, all this independent characterization that is part of the fine-tuning brings us or uh, tells us that probably there is a creative mind behind, or that's a very good hypothesis. It's like when we look at a painting, and see features that we can recognize. Just as we sort of, when we look at life and see all the features of life, it's things that uh, sort of 
brings our thoughts towards a creative mind. For that reason, I would say that fine-tuning naturally leads to artistic interpretation. And earlier this, uh, during this episode, we talked about fine-tuning is something we observe, and, and that's unco- quite uncontroversial when it comes to cosmology, but now we talk about the interpretation of fine-tuning. And, 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 and then the artistic interpretation is, is quite natural because of the way we define fine-tuning. So the, the the creator of this is a creative mind, and so I think a lot of people would say, okay, you're talking about God, which I think we are, right? Yes, yes, certainly, yes. And it, it's very interesting about how the fine-tuning of the universe has brought people to a belief in God. One of them, which is kind of a poster boy, is Anthony Flew, who wrote in 1976, The Presumption of Atheism. Gosh, who was it? I think it was Walter Bradley was telling me, boy, he sure wishes that Anthony Flew had become a deist before he became a deist. That would save him from reading a lot of uh, Anthony Flew's (laughs) (laughs) defense of atheism. But, you know, it didn't happen. So he had to read a lot of Anthony Flew's work on on the defense of atheism. So I want to get to the uh, now to, to the last topic that I want to talk about. You know, I I think panspermia is silly. I think Sims theory is silly. But for every one of these that I think is silly, there are people out there that would argue and debate me and say that they're not silly. And many times this comes down to a personal belief that everybody has. And so we're going to put aside the physics and talk about what our personal beliefs are. And let's go ahead and start with Daniel. What do you think is the cause of all this fine-tuning that we see in the universe? Okay, so uh, just trying to go a little uh, technical in the philosophy here, just let me make a differentiation between deist and theist. Yes, yes, okay. Uh, uh, it, is, it is an important point to make because actually uh, the de- deist believes that there is a God but that the world is created in such a way that God is not interacting with it in any way. Really? I always thought that the theist was a subset of deist, but I'm being uh, corrected here. Is that right? So uh, the theist is, or the the or theism is the position that there is a God and he interacts with the universe he created. So there is a kind of a differentiation between the two. Deism was actually championed uh, by by Luc de Spinoza, and it influenced the Einstein's thinking a lot. Actually, that's who, who was it influenced by? By Luc de Spinoza. He was a very famous philosopher in Europe. In I think it was the eighteen hundreds, but I might be mistaken in the in the date. But the point is that he defended a universe. So this is very interesting. The guy was a believer in God. Of course, that's why he proposed that there was God, but he did not interest. But he created uh, that he thought that God had created a world that was so perfect that did not need any intervention. Uh, so it is a very, very mechanistic way of thinking of the world. And that was something that Einstein absorbed a lot. And that is the reason for Einstein to reject the uh, to reject quantum physics with its uh, Copenhagen interpretation. That's where the famous sentence of Einstein came about uh, uh, God does not play dice. Yes. Uh, Because he was thinking that if God were playing dice, then he would be interacting with nature, with the world that God created. So for Einstein, that was unthinkable. 
Anyhow, that's the deist position. The theist position is to believe that there is a God and that he interacts with the universe that he created. So I am a Christian. And that's basically the position I suppose. That's what I think happened. That's uh, according to my worldview, the more uh, the, the best explanation for for fine tuning. I think that there was a God, and that there is a God actually who created the world, and uh, that we can see evidence of that in fine tuning. Okay, Ola. What do you think? Yes, I yes, I totally agree with Daniel, and and I, I'm also Christian, and uh, for for therefore for me, it's natural to associate or explain a fine-tuned structure such as the university existing with life within it to sort of interpret that as the universe was created by God, and uh, also He had a purpose for creating that universe, uh, and. Uh, that purpose was for humans to live in the universe and thrive within it and have a relationship with God. So, so, so I sort of connect this inter- interpretation with reading the Bible, and uh, and uh, so uh, and the Bible also says that we as humans have sort of um, he, we have a big responsibility in taking care of of our planet, the Earth, and uh, mm-hmm. and. And, and that naturally leads us to the anthropic principle, that uh, the strong anthropic principle that God created the world, the universe and our planet in a way that is sort of optimized for us humans. And uh, so, and that's simply, that's because, in my interpretation, that's because of his love for us. And, and I think that his, his love is most strongly revealed in his sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, so that anyone who believes in Jesus and commits his life to Jesus will have eternal life. And personally, I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 22, 23 years old, and that has been the best decision of my life. And that is sort of my sort of interpretation of fine-tuning. It's really God is a creator of everything for the purpose that he loves us and he wants to have a relationship with us and he wants also to be surrounded by a nature and a cosmos that is sort of functioning well and that is also uh, aesthetically pleasing. Excellent. Thank, thank you, Ola. I am with you. I, I, I am also a follower of Christ. I would say even more fundamental, I'm kind of a John 3.16 kind of Christian. And I, I became a Christian about the same age that you did, Ola, about as 22 years old as a junior in college. And nothing makes sense. One of the, it, nothing made sense. And then I, I came to Christ and all of a sudden everything made sense. And it was just, it was, it was just a beautiful, beautiful experience that's difficult to communicate to people. So, yep, I'm, I, I, I'm with you. One of the things that happens is I think that people become Christians by their faith. But one of the, one of the things, especially people like us, we are intellectually gifted. That's been gifts that God has given to us. We are all three if you'll excuse the expression, kind of nerds, if you will. And uh, and the beautiful part about being a Christian is that all of these things that we look at are intellectually stimulating and, and provide evidence for the faith. And I have always find that just to be wonderful. I've always looked at the Christian well, kind of a version which, which talks about God's creation 
and the the purpose of God's creation in our existence. And this is Romans one twenty. It says, "For the for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse." Louis Pasteur famously said, "You know, the more I look into the science, the more I see God." That certainly is true with all of this fine-tuning stuff that we've talked about. The more I look into it, the deeper I understand it, the more I see God's hand in it. And it's just been wonderfully intellectually satisfying in in our times and our discussions together. Great. Any final words? Yeah, I just want to mention another thing, Bob, and it is that all the other uh, quotation competing explanations to the uh, taste interpretation that God is the source of the fine-tuning are actually not uh, totally opposed to it. So, for instance, in the, th- in the simulation hypothesis, it is perfectly possible to think that the programmer was God. Yeah, you know, I've thought about that, too. I've thought about that, too. He kind of wrote us and created us with his word, and he, we're, we're, we're simulations of God in some sense. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I, I'm, not saying, I, I'm, I'm not saying that that's my interpretation, but then that is a possibility if we are considering the simulation hypothesis. Uh, on the other side, for instance, with the weak anthropic principle, the fact that the observation is biased does not mean necessarily that it is incorrect. So uh, that happens with the, with the weak anthropic principle. With the strong anthropic principle that says, actually adds the interpretation and says that the universe was uh, made so that he, it could uh, host life. Well, it's basically kind of going into a deistic, at least, or even a theistic interpretation. So, so none of those things in the end are necessarily opposed. It's just a particular version of those points that would be uh, opposing to the theistic version of the, or the theistic argument as the source of the fine-tuning. So that's very interesting because not even the arguments that have been placed in order to counter it necessarily uh, counter uh, the theistic interpretation of the fine-tuning. You know, one of the things, um, Stephen Hawking wonderfully said that nothing is proven in physics, that you only accumulate evidence. I think accumulation of evidence is also important for these interpretations of fine-tuning. There is no evidence for panspermia, directed or otherwise. There's no evidence for Sims theory, although we've heard stories, I don't know if they're urban myths, but we have heard stories about Elon Musk looking for holes in the theory of fine-tuning. There is no evidence of the strong and weak anthropic principle. It is totally philosophical. There is no evidence about the universe, but there is evidence accumulating that maybe God Almighty was the creator of the universe. And with abductive reasoning, that's that kind of leads me to the biblical account of, of creation as the correct one. Yes. So uh, it's, the o- it's the only one to me that makes sense. Yeah, it's in the end, the, 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 to me, it's the same thing. Okay, this has been great. Look, we've been talking about fine-tuning in our universe, and not only in our universe, but in biology, with Dr. Daniel Diaz from the University of Miami and Dr. Ola Hersher from Stockholm University. It has been a great chat. We've covered a lot of material, and I've learned a lot. So I hope you've enjoyed it, too. So until next time, be of good cheer. This has been Mind Matters News with your host, Robert J. Marks. 
Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.